welcome to ACE Audio, the podcast that supports, educates, informs, and motivates manual therapists around the world. Hey everyone, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Sean Brewster and Boating Legend back here again today. Bo, today we are talking about trying not to forget your differential diagnoses in clinical practice. It's a simple, well, simple, it's an easy one to overlook. I think a lot of practitioners jump to conclusions a lot of the time, don't they? We see this a lot of the time. Patient comes in with back pain, must be a disc. Patient comes in with pain down the back of the leg, must be the sciatic nerve. Patient comes, we could go on and on this. There's so many different things. And it's this jumping to conclusion that gets us in trouble a lot in clinical practice. Yeah, it's easy to have those biases and, and you know, oh, this sounds like something I've treated before. This is this is what it must be. Um, and, you know, we know how complex the human body is and how complex pain is, um, but we always do need to, to keep an eye out for things that may uh, maybe a little bit outside the norm. And I think the important thing here is to make sure that we do have a structured screening process in place and it's not just diving straight into treatment because we do need to examine other possibilities of what it potentially could be and, you know, use that screening process to firstly rule out things that may be more sinister. That's right. And it is a, it's a screening process, isn't it? And this is a, the process that I like to go through when someone presents with pain in a particular area is actually go through a step-by-step process. Don't just think to yourself, okay, I've got to do my differential diagnosis. So let's list off all the things that could potentially be going wrong in that region because invariably you'll forget something. And so a nice way to do this, I think at least, is to look at things from an anatomical perspective first rather than just trying to remember all the pathologies you learned at school to do with a, a knee or a shoulder or whatever is presenting to think about first of all locally at the area of the site of pain or dysfunction list off all of the different types of structures that are present there so you might begin by looking at something like the musculotendinous structures in the region could they be a potential source of pain or dysfunction the person's presenting with then maybe roll onto something like joints ligamentous structures, uh, other structures relating to the joint in that region. Maybe you'll then look at things like neural structures. Are there any neural sites of neurological compression in or around the area? Are there the potential sources of neurological referral to that area? We can, of course, also rule out simple things like trigger points and taut bands and causing um, referring pain to that area as well. We're going to look at bones. Is there a potential for stress fractures and, and things like that in that site? And then, of course, you can go then into more sinister pathologies that might be um, presenting with pain or dysfunction in that area that might be something that might be less obvious than just the, the typical anatomical structures of that region. If we work our way through those lists, it helps us not jump to conclusions. It also helps us think systematically about what are the potential sources of pain for the person rather than just trying to come up with a list of pathologies. Yeah, and I think even zooming out and, and really starting with that thorough history, I think that's the most important thing, you know, before we even start to look at any musculoskeletal structures, it's really 
spending that time to go through a history and i'm not talking about just looking at the history form that the patient fills in it's really diving into um, the history of the symptoms the type the frequency the duration the severity the longevity all of this sort of stuff that that might give us an indication of what's going on in their life the their drug use their history of injuries um, any medications that they're using um, steroid use all of that sort of stuff because it might masquerade as musculoskeletal pathology or injury or pain but there could be some other contributors that um you know uh, you know we've really got to examine and explore in a little bit more detail absolutely you're right and especially with your chronic pain presentations or or uh, injuries that have had a more insidious sort of onset what you're talking about there is absolutely critical you have to look at the history not just the, his the medical history of the person but the history of the pathology how it's, how it's behaved over the time leading up to the time they're presented to see you. And so getting that full picture of the person, all of the different components that make them up as a person is so critical to then being able to go, okay, right, you've got this going on. Now let's look a little narrower and zoom in on the knee or the ankle or the whatever it might be. Because we know that pain, we've said this over and over, pain is multifactorial, right? It's not just about the torn tendon, the torn ligament, whatever it might be. It's different, of course, when we have an acute injury. We can be a little bit more mechanical in our thinking when someone comes in and says, I've rolled my ankle, now I have pain, or I landed on my shoulder and now I have pain. Sure, focus on the anatomy. But when someone comes in and says, I've had this pain that's been building up over the last few weeks or it's come and gone over time, absolutely, we have to zoom right out and look at that full person. Yeah, because it's so easy to, to point the finger at a muscle or <laughs> a, a joint or a ligament. Um, but, you know... Taking that approach to, to see, well, is there is there some a vascular component? You know, someone, for example, someone might be presenting with hip pain and it's unremitting pain. It's not. Um, it may be non mechanical in nature, and um, you know, there, is there some vascular stuff going on here as well? Is do they have a history of of steroid use? And we start to think about all of this stuff. You, you know, are they anemic? You know, are they? Do they have a low BMI? Um, have they had changes in exercise frequency or intensity and these sorts of things? You think, well, what if this hip pain isn't isn't due to um, uh, the, the labrum or to extra articular causes? What if there, there, there's a stress fracture? Um, and, and, you know, that's where we should be starting to think, well, this is what I think it is. But these are the other possibilities, and I've got to keep this in mind because if it is one of these, then would it change my treatment intervention? You know, when we, for example, if we looked at groin pain, if someone had adductor related groin pain versus pubic related groin pain, well, would it change your treatment intervention and approach? Well, probably not. Um, but if it is something more, more along the lines of a fracture, well, yeah, that's significantly going to change your your treatment approach. Um, so we've got to keep those those things in mind and just keep an eye out for some abnormal symptoms. You know, um, night pain, unremitting pain, something that that's not really linked to any specific uh, specific um, uh, mechanism of injury. Uh, but again, those medications, the the lifestyle factors. Um, history of injury, all of that stuff is, is really important because once we can screen them and rule that sort of stuff out, then we can start to zoom in a little bit more on the structures. Absolutely right. And this is the beauty of the differential diagnosis process. And it's something I always hammer home to students in the classroom. 
It's so important to, to really develop that list before you make any decisions. It's a differential diagnosis list, right? A list of all the potential things that could be potentially, and I say potentially to emphasize that, could be potentially uh, present with this patient. And you'll, if you, if you spend some time really developing a list, you'll come up with a list of some pretty wild and crazy things that you think was very unlikely to be three or four of those things on the list. That's okay. It's still part of the list. We don't put it on there. We don't consider it. And here's the interesting thing we sometimes see with clinical practice too, is that a patient will present with something quite simple, maybe something fairly mechanical. They've had a fall or whatever, and they've got some other symptoms that don't necessarily match that thing. And so we'll go, right, they've had a foosh, they've fallen on the hand, outstretched hand. Yep, okay, we've got some load through the shoulder. Oh, there's a little a little step deformity. At the shoulder. It's an AC joint, you know, sprain. Okay, we know what it is. But they've also got this pain that's been coming and going for a few weeks. They're having difficulty sleeping on that shoulder before the injury. And it's very easy to forget about those symptoms when you see the obvious mechanical injury. But they may also have a space-occupying lesion, a tumour, who knows, right? There could be anything else going on in there. And so we have to consider all the potential things on the list because there may be one or two or three different pathologies present in a person. But if we get too narrow, narrowly focused, we only see what's most obvious to us. And so there's danger in that. And so this process of elimination, like you said before, you've got to rule things out, list all the possible things, and then look at the, the patient's history are there one or two or three things that point to this one on the list? Yes. Okay. Well, we put a little little mark next to that one. We're going to come back to that. We work our way through the list until the list gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then, we list, then we're left with a few things. And then those are the things that we really start to assess. They're the ones we'll actually conduct our physical assessment on and try to identify whether they are potentially present or if we can rule them out. Yeah. And we've almost in, in the back of our mind or in the front of our mind, we, we should be almost uh, thinking about what's the worst possible scenario here. Mm. So, for example, someone presents with carpal tunnel syndrome, what as a self, self-diagnosed carpal tunnel syndrome. We've sort of got to think, okay, well, maybe it's carpal tunnel syndrome, but what if it is? If there's a component of an upper motor neuron disorder? What if there is a cervical myelopathy? Um, is, it, is it spinal nerve-related? Or is it a peripheral neuropathy? Or are there other, other systemic factors that, that could be contributing to nerve-type symptoms? So starting at that top of the list and, and going through that and think, okay, well, good news is doesn't look like an upper motor neuron disorder, um, doesn't look like a, a cervical myelopathy, doesn't look like it's coming from, from the nerve root. So you're working your way down and then, okay, this is the most likely uh, clinical impression that we've got or our working diagnosis, and then uh, we can work with that. And then if it's not responding to that proposed intervention for that working diagnosis, then we go back to that, that, that differentials list and go, okay, well, this is what I thought of before. Let's, let's examine this a little bit more. Let's go back through that assessment and maybe there's something that I, I've missed here because if we're not getting the results that we, we, were, um, we were hoping to get initially, Let's go back and, and review this and, and go through it a little bit more detail once again. Yeah, that's right. So we, we do have to sometimes put on our negative Nancy sunglasses and look at this and go, well, it could be something much worse than we're thinking that that's presenting with uh, and rule out those sinister pathologies before we then get into the treatment because we've all heard of situations where patients are being diagnosed with something and they go on their merry well way with treatment or just self-management 
only to find out weeks or months later that I actually had a, a, a fractured neck of femur or something quite serious where they should have been off their feet. And so we do have to consider these sort of worst case scenario things ahead of time so that we can rule them out confidently before we move on to the next thing. The opposite is sometimes true too, which is, I say this quite a bit, which is if you hear hooves, don't think zebras. Right? Sometimes you'll, if you hear hooves coming, it's most, most likely a horse, right? More likely than a zebra. And so if you see pain in, in soft tissue, it's possible, more likely probably a soft tissue problem. But you, you can't just say, well, it's not the worst case scenario. We have to think of both sides of the coin and rule out the ones that are most dangerous first before we can then move on with a, a less um, less scary kind of diagnosis or working diagnosis to, to move forward with. Um, so it's important to really come up with that comprehensive list before you move forward to assessment and then treatment. Yeah, and also, like, a lot of the time it's okay to say that they've got shoulder-related pain. You know, like... We don't have to put our finger on a specific structure because we know this, again, I always talk about this from, from the literature, that um, there is a mismatch between what we see in, in pathological findings on imaging versus pain, and we can't look at an image and, and, and see what structure is causing the pain. And so, you know, by saying, well, I think you've got a rotator cuff, a, a, a supraspinatus tear, for example, well, there could be bursal thickening, there could be osteoarthritic changes, there could be a number of things that are going on, but it, it is still okay to say, well, rotator cuff-related shoulder pain or shoulder-related pain um, because, you know, we don't need to put diagnostic labels on everything, but the, the importance is to make sure that, that more serious things are ruled out first and then go with that general um shoulder-related pain approach. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point to make, isn't it, this idea of the diagnostic label being something that we ultimately aim for. If we can name that thing, it, get, it gives us this sense of certainty and a sense of values. Like we've told the patient what's wrong with them. Now they, they can take some you know sense of um, certainty away from that and feel like we've, we've helped them. And then we can come up with a treatment plan. But often, I'd say probably more often than not, we don't really know. We have a pretty good feeling a lot of the time based on our understanding of pathology and physiology, and pathophysiology, I should say. We can go, it's most likely this particular pathology, but sometimes giving it a name too gives it a little bit more power. And it can be dangerous, right? If you give a, a, a patient with pain a title, then they'll go and Google that or they'll ask their friends, what do you know about you know this particular thing? And they'll get all these sorts of stories that come out of the other end of their their own individual research and then pretty soon they've catastrophized their scenario so sometimes the diagnosis is the dangerous thing the opposite is also true where if you don't identify the thing then they can also catastrophize it. you go i don't know what the source of your pain is that is dangerous too so we've got to find that happy middle ground where we can confidently rule out the things that it's not identify what we believe what we believe mostly it will be and then we can decatastrophize that situation for the patient by providing appropriate education, understanding around, okay, you've got shoulder-related pain, rotator cuff-related pain, there's some thickening of this bursa, there's some degenerating minor degen degeneration of this tendon, which is quite appropriate for your age, really, and considering all the activities that you do, it's quite normal. Here's the, the clear path forward for you that will reduce your discomfort and pain and improve your strength and function over time. Nothing to be concerned about. Here's what we need to do to make sure you get there. And then they don't have an opportunity to create a story around the title, right? We give them an explanation with enough detail so that they can move forward because there's always fear on the other side of 
misunderstanding. So if you don't understand something, you're more likely to become fearful of it. Remove that misunderstanding by providing education and then the patient can move forward confidently regardless of what title you might have put on that thing. For sure. And so much of that comes back to demonstrating that that you are going through the, the entire process, you know, spending that time with the history, spending that time with the assessment and then using that to say, do you know what, John, based on based on your, your history, based on what we've found as far as our clinical assessment goes, good news is there's, there's no signs of serious pathology here. We can move forward with, with treatment and getting back to things that, that you enjoy doing. And I think that's the real value in, in doing a good thorough physical assessment and, and history is to be able to tell them that with confidence uh, so that, you know, immediately their, their level of fear and threat and worry and anxiety will start to decrease and, and we, can, we can, you know, start to, um, to improve their confidence with, with movement and getting them doing the things that they want to do again. So, um, yeah, that, that's really, really spend your time with that sort of stuff. Uh, I think that's, that's super important. Yeah, good. And adding one more layer to that too, I think, is if, even if you can't put a finger on it on the exact pathology or presentation you think is going on a nice thing you can do is what you pointed out there and i've found patients really like this is tell them what it's not say right okay you've come in with neck pain gives you headaches and stuff cool now there's a lot of things that can give you headaches here's the things based on my assessment that i believe it's not you can rule out i don't believe it's disc related problems i don't think you've got any nerve compression i don't believe you've got any kind of space occupying lesions i don't like you rule Based on my assessment, I, don't th- I think we can rule all of that out, which is great news. And suddenly there's a positive spin on their pathology or their presentation. What we don't know at this point is whether it's actually a bit of irritation at the joint or maybe a bit of soft tissue in the area that's referring pain up into your neck and head, as an example. But our treatment is going to be about the same regardless. So that's good news as well. So here's what I propose we do. As far as your treatment goes, here's some things you can do at home. And I believe we'll get some good results in a fairly short space of time based on this. And then suddenly the patient's got hope. You haven't given them an exact title, an exact pathology, but you've done your differential diagnosis, you've ruled out the things that it's not, you've told them the things that it's not, and then you've told them what you know at this point and what you can do to help them, and then what they should expect to experience going forward. It's hugely empowering for a patient. Yeah, I love that. Completely agree. And even one step before that would be to ask them, what do you believe it is? Like, what do you think is going on? Uh, and especially if they've, they've um, heard a diagnostic label or they've Googled something or they've been, been given one of these labels, um, tell, me, tell me more about, about what that looks like for you. And, you know, so then we can start to look at that and, and understand how they are, what they're, what they're thinking about and how their future looks. Um, and then we can use our assessment to say, hey, you know how you, you, you're worried about um, that disc bulge in your lumbar spine pushing or your pinched nerve? There's good signs. That there's no neurological deficit here. But that area is highly sensitised at the moment. Um, and the best way to get you out of that sensitivity is to start to, to get you moving. We can use a little bit of manual therapy here. We can start to do some movement and some exercise. Does that sound like that, that would be suitable for you? Good news is also is, is the prognostic outcomes for this is is really great. You know, over over uh, the next three three to four months, we should see a really good resolution in symptoms and improved quality of life. Yeah, that's for sure. And so this is all we're really expanding the topic here, isn't it? The idea of focusing on the differential diagnosis is just the starting points, the tip of the iceberg. 
it prevents us from making rash decisions. It prevents us from jumping to conclusions and wasting the patient's time and money and our own time and resources chasing chasing ghosts, chasing things that aren't necessarily there or chasing the wrong targets. And so this whole idea of uh, building a differential diagnosis list is so critical. And I, I think the biggest problem that we see a lot of, a lot of our, our students and other practitioners having is, is they'll, a patient will present with pain in a particular area and they won't know the things to put on the list. And so, like you said, take that full holistic view of the patient, their entire history, really ask a lot of questions, dive deep about all the behaviours and things they've been experiencing and what that's looked like over time. And then once we've gathered as much data as we possibly can, zoom in, go into the, into the region of the, of the dysfunction, the pain, look at the structures, consider all those things. And then I know there's a lot of people listening to this or watching this and go, okay, well, but when patients come to me with a TMJ problem or a foot problem or a knee problem or whatever it might be, an area of the body they might not know well, they'll, they'll just get stuck. They don't know the things to look for. And so this is where it does take a little bit of additional work for, for us, each, uh, each of us as health practitioners, is to continue learning, continue reading. Just open an anatomy book, look at the structures, go online, use, use apps, understand the anatomy really well. Then go a layer bigger than that. Okay, now let's look at the physiology and how all these structures interrelate. Then we can look at pathology and how, how do those pathologies present clinically? What are the clinical signs and symptoms, the clinical features of those pathologies? And it's only when we get this understanding, this layering of information that we can see somebody come in with a neck problem or a shoulder problem and just go bang, 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 bang and list off 30 things that it could potentially be and then start whittling that list down over time. But it does take, it takes practice, right? It takes some some investment in your own knowledge and understanding. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Great. Okay. So short, sharp one for us today, but hopefully that has been useful for, for people listening to this, the importance of the differential diagnosis list and the importance of working through that so that you can clinically reason your way to better outcomes uh, and better explanations for your patients moving forward. All right. We'll call it quits. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks Bo. We'll talk to you soon. Yes.